If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open it to the book of Romans, chapter 3. There are some notes in your bulletin where you can track along with the message this morning. Many of you know, some of you don't know, in 2022, we are reading through the New Testament together as a church. And this last week, we've had a, a pivot, a bit of a change in what we are reading. Up to this point this year, we have been reading the Gospels and Acts, and now we are to the point in the New Testament where for several months we will be reading letters that Paul wrote to churches. So that means we've had a, a genre change in what we're reading in the New Testament. We've been reading narrative stories, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, and now we're reading letters or what Bible scholars call epistles. The difference is that when you read and you study narrative in the Bible, you typically read a longer section and you look for character development and you look for clues about meaning and you look for things like repetition and patterns and important words in the story. When you look at epistles, the letters that Paul wrote to various churches, you typically take a shorter passage. You don't read quite as much because Epistles are more direct. They're more straight to the point. Rather than sort of telling you a story that makes a large point or a couple of points, Paul just makes the point. He just gets right to it. And so you take a smaller section and you pay careful attention to vocabulary and syntax and grammar and sentence structure and things like that. As we begin, let me say a couple of things, and we're going to move quickly on the front end here. Let me say a couple of things about the book of Romans as a whole and about the first part of Romans that we're skipping over as we jump in in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Most Bible scholars agree that the book of Romans could be described as Paul's magnum opus, or his great work. Now, when I say that, I understand that all Scripture is breathed out by God. All of the Scriptures are inspired by God. All of the Scriptures are true. All of the Scriptures are valuable. We just studied a story in my Sunday school class, very obscure story, story that most of us are not familiar with. There's value in those stories. But Bible scholars and theologians look at the book of Romans, and for generations they've said there is something special about this book. Let me give you a couple of examples of theologians who have said this sort of thing. Martin Luther said, Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the perfect gospel. The chief part of the New Testament and the perfect gospel. John Calvin said this, when anyone understands Romans, he has a passage open to him to the understanding of the whole Scripture. There is something special about the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, and Bible scholars agree on that. Another thing that Bible scholars of all stripes and all varieties agree on is that the theme of the book of Romans can be found in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and verse 17. That's the thematic verse of the book of Romans. And if your Bible's open, you can just flip and we'll read it. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. This is the theme of the whole book. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let me share with you one more quote, something that an uh, 
old Bible teacher, old Bible scholar named James Boyce said about these verses in Romans. In the 16th and 17th verses of Romans, we come to sentences that are the most important in the letter, perhaps in all literature. They're the theme of this epistle and the essence of Christianity. They're the heart of biblical religion. The reason this is so is that they tell us how a man or a woman might become right with God. That's what Romans 16 and 17 is about. How can a man or a woman, how can a human being become right with God? Assumed in those verses and assumed in that statement from James Boyce is the understanding that left to ourselves, human beings, men and women, boys and girls, are not right with God. And that's the first major thing that Paul develops in the book of Romans. If you pick up right where we left off, Romans 1 verse 18, and you read all the way to Romans chapter 3 verse 20, you will find Paul talking about something that theologians call total depravity. It's an undeniable biblical doctrine from Genesis to Revelation, but it is particularly laid out in Romans 1, 2, and 3. When we talk about total depravity, let me tell you what we don't mean. The total depravity of mankind, that does not mean, does not mean every human being is as bad as they possibly could be. That's not what we're saying. When we talk about total depravity of men and women, boys and girls, human beings, what we're saying is that all human beings have sinned, all of us, and that every part of who we are as human beings, people made in the image of God, every part of us is infected or affected or tainted by sin. There's no part of who we are, no corner in our hearts, our minds, our souls that is not tainted by sin, by the stain of sin. Paul lays it out, the total depravity of mankind. This section, Romans 1.18 to 3.20, essentially says you have a problem and it's worse than you'd like to think. When you step back and you look at the book of Romans in its entirety, it's not a bad news book, it's a good news book. Remember the thematic verse, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed of the good news. And the good news is that God is kind and gracious and He has provided a way for sinful people to be made right with Him. So that brings us to our passage, and it brings us to the big idea of our passage. This is something we saw just a few weeks ago as we looked at the book of Acts, but it's an important truth, and so we'll hammer it home again. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what Paul's driving home in the verses that we're about to read. So look with me, if you will, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19, and we're going to read down to verse 26. The Word of God says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the book of Romans. We're thankful for this letter that Paul wrote to this church, this beautiful book filled with doctrinal truths and filled with practical applications to our lives. Lord, give us ears to hear your word this morning. Give us the humility to sit under the authority of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you, just by a quick show of hands, would say, sometimes I just want silence? Some of you in this room have just gone on vacation with kids and your hand is, both hands are up. Yes. Some of you have taught school for the last year and both your hands up and a leg is sticking up behind you. Yes. Silence. We live in a world where we very rarely experience silence. I don't know if you've noticed that or thought about that, but there is a lot of noise most of the places we go. For example, if you go to a a retail shop or you go to a grocery store or you go to a restaurant, there's almost always music playing. You're very rarely there in silence, in quiet. There's always sort of a background noise behind you. At some restaurants, the background noise is so loud, you can't hardly talk to the person across the table for you, from you. It doesn't seem to bother most people because they're on their phone anyways. Maybe that's how they're talking to each other. It's so loud, they're just texting each other at the table, but there's noise, there's music, there's sound, all of the places that we go. When we get into our cars, what do most of us do? We turn on the radio, we blast our favorite song, we put on our favorite playlist, we listen to our favorite podcast, you put on AM talk radio or country music or whatever it is you like to listen to. We get in our cars and we want noise. In my pickup truck, there's a short in the radio. And about one out of every 50 times that I start my truck, the radio just won't power on. And when I drive around with no radio, I just think, it's really quiet. I need some noise. I need some music. I need a podcast. I need sports talk. I need something. I'm just used to that, and the silence can be striking. What about earbuds? Earbuds are a wonderful thing. Earbuds are a way that you can be around other people without having to talk to them. But it's also a way that you fill your brain, you fill your ear canals with sound, with noise. You're working out, you're working around the house, you're working at the office, you're traveling, you're exercising, whatever it is that you're doing, we put earbuds in because we don't want the silence. We don't want to have to talk to other people, but we also don't want to have to talk to ourselves. 
And so we put in earbuds and we listen to sound. What about television? Everybody on television wants you to listen to them and what they have to say. All those talking heads that show up on the screen. They're experts on everything. And they want you to know what they have to say about the game that's about to be played or the game that was just played. About the election that's coming or the election that just happened. They all have something to say. And even when you turn the television off, most of us turn our phones on and we scroll through Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and social media. And people may not be talking audibly to us, but when you scroll through social media, you're listening to people. You're listening to what they have to say and what they think. So in the middle of all of that, some of you just say, you know what, I just want silence. Quiet. If that's you, I have good news and bad news. Good news is that there will be a day coming, Paul says, when every mouth is stopped. That's Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. The bad news is that day is going to be a day of judgment. And if you want a preview of what that day is going to be like, you could look at the Old Testament book of Job. Job went through a lot of things, bad things. Job and his friends had a lot to say to each other. There was a lot of talking. In fact, it's the most just direct conversation talking in all of the Bible. It's very little story. The story just takes a few verses at the beginning of the book. The rest of it's just talking, people talking, back and forth, arguing, bickering, fighting, talking, experts, pontificating. And then God shows up. The one thing Job thought he wanted. And when God shows up, this is what you read in the book of Job, chapter 40. Job said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. He literally put his hand on his mouth and there was silence. There's a day coming, the Bible says, when every mouth will be silenced. On that day, you don't need a good argument. You don't need a quick comeback. You don't need an expert opinion to testify on your behalf. What you will need on that day is what the Bible calls the righteousness of God. We've been talking about the righteousness of God this morning as we read from the opening parts of the book of Romans. The question is, what exactly is the righteousness of God? Clearly, we need it in order to stand before the Lord on the final day of judgment. But what is it? And throughout church history, there's been two dominant answers. Some people have said the righteousness of God is something that comes from within you. It's something that you conjure up, something that you obtain on your own efforts and merits. And other people have said, no, 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 that is not what the righteousness of God is. The righteousness of God is something that exists outside of us and can be given to us. So setting that debate aside, let's just listen to what the Scripture says. What is the righteousness of God? Well, first of all, it's not something that we can obtain by our own moral effort. That is not what it is. 
you and I, human beings, men and women, boys and girls, cannot obtain the righteousness of God that we've read about here on our own moral effort. Four times Paul talks about righteousness in this passage. Verse 22, the righteousness of God. Verse 24, he talks about we're justified as this gift. In 25, says that we uh, receive this gift by faith, and it's to show God's righteousness. Verse 26, he is showing his righteousness. Verse 21 at the top, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Four times in this passage. Go back to chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Twice he talks about the righteousness of God. It is not something you can obtain on your own moral effort. So if your Bible's open, just jump back up and look at Romans chapter 3, verse 10. The end of verse 10, Paul says, none is righteous, no, not one. There are no righteous people. How many? Not even one. A few? A handful? No. Not a single righteous person. Look at what Paul says in verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short. None are righteous. No, not one. When you say that to the world, the world rages. Almost every person you will ever meet in your life thinks that they are a good person. Almost all of them. Very few people that you meet in your life will say, I'm the worst person of all because Hitler's out there somewhere. And very few people, although you may know one or two, but very few people will say, I'm the best person that's out there. The vast majority of them will look you in the eye and say, you know what, I'm a pretty good person. And they're basing that self-evaluation on looking at other people and watching the news and scrolling through social media and seeing all the craziness in the world. And they look at all that, then they look at themselves and they say, well, by comparison, I look pretty good. Problem is, other people, social media, stories on the news are not the standard. The law of God is the standard. And Paul says, when you line yourself up against the law of God, there is none righteous, no, not one all have sinned. This righteousness that you need to stand before God is not something you are going to be able to obtain on your own self-moral effort. What is it? It is the act of obedience of Jesus that can be credited to our account. That's what it is. It's not moral effort on your part but it's the act of obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a way for that obedience to be credited to your account. Now here's the thing. The book of Romans is a complicated, complex book. The arguments are deep. Paul does not put all the cookies on the lowest shelf. He makes you think. And so I'm asking you to think because we're talking about the book of Romans. I'm just for a moment, I'm asking you to think. Use your brain. God gave you a brain. He doesn't just want you to love Him with all of your heart and soul, but also with all of your mind. So we're just going to think and use our brain power just for a minute. You've heard the old adage, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Okay? Let me ask you a different version. What came first, God or His law? Biblically speaking, what came first? 
Well, the Bible answer is not a trick. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. It's not in the beginning, law. It's in the beginning, God. God came first, and He created people, and He created people to belong to Him. And He saved the people from slavery in Egypt, out of bondage, to be His people. And He gave them law. Now, what you need to understand is that when God came down to Mount Sinai and Moses went up Mount Sinai and they had this meeting on Mount Sinai where God was giving Moses the law, God did not give Moses an arbitrary set of rules. Okay? It's not like God and Moses had this conversation on Sinai and God said, Well, Moses, I'm glad you're here. We need to make up some rules. Moses, you know the people. Do you think we should include a law about stealing? Well, I probably need a law on stealing. Okay, we'll put a law in about stealing. Moses, do you think that we're going to need to put anything about lying? Yeah, might need one of those. Moses, are we going to have to put anything in here about marriage? Do you think the people are confused? Yeah, that's not a bad idea. That's not how it went. What God gave Moses in the law was not something they just conjured up together and pulled out of thin air. What God gave Moses was a reflection of who God is. What God was saying to Moses is, Moses, you are my people and I want you to be like me. So here's the rules. Here's the commandments. Here's the law. It was a reflection of God's character. It was a picture of who God is and what He's like. It's not just a bunch of arbitrary, don't do this, do this. But it's God saying to His people, this is what I'm like and this is what I want you to be like. And God's people lived under that law, usually unsuccessfully. When you get to the New Testament, something amazing happens. There's a baby born. Maybe you've heard of him. His name is Jesus. We celebrate His birth at Christmas. And sometimes we forget what an amazing miracle took place the first Christmas. Let me just frame it to you in cosmic terms. The first Christmas, Bethlehem, the shepherds, the angels, Mary, Joseph, all that stuff. The eternal Word of God who created the whole cosmos took on flesh and dwelt among us. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, became a baby, a human baby. And that baby grew up to be a man, Jesus of Nazareth. At that first Christmas, infinite God took on finite humanity without ceasing to be God. It's the greatest miracle that has ever occurred. It's the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. And as Jesus, the God-man, walked around on this earth, something amazing happened. You read about it from the very first week of His life all the way through His dying moments on the cross. The Lord Jesus submitted Himself to the law. Say, okay, so what? Think about this. God became man 
without ceasing to be God, and he submitted himself his entire life from beginning to end to the law. Whose law? It's his law. It's his law. That law was a reflection of his character. And when Jesus walked this earth, he lived that law perfectly. Why? Because that's who he was. He lived a life, the Bible says, of complete obedience, total conformity to the law of God. He never once did, said, thought, or felt anything that violated the law of God. Not once. He became like us in our humanity. But what he did in his active obedience to the law of God is he earned righteousness. You look around the world, no one is righteous. No, not one. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But the Lord Jesus Christ earned the righteousness that we need to stand before God and to be made right with God. Theologians talk about the righteousness of God. This goes all the way back to Luther. Luther said, the righteousness that we need is an alien righteousness. That's what he called it, an alien righteousness. You say, did he make a trip to Area 51? Was he predicting SpaceX and NASA? Was he talking about the heavens and little green guys and war of the world? No, he's not talking about any of that. What he's saying is, the righteousness that we need is outside of us. It is not inside of us. You will not find the righteousness of God in you because of who you are and what you've done. You will only find this righteousness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, you want to talk about something that the world hates? The world hates the idea of alien righteousness. Hates it. Despises it and rages against it. From the moment we start watching our screens, cartoons, movies... TV shows, we are told in this culture that all of the answers to our problems can be found if we look inside of our hearts. We are indoctrinated with that worldview, with that idea. Look inside yourself, dig down deep, and you will find everything that you need, all the answers to life's questions. The whole world seemingly right now this month is celebrating the idea that all you have to do in life is look inside and find whatever is there and then live it out whatever that may be. Look inside you for truth. Look inside you for what's right. Look inside you for meaning and purpose. Do you know what the Bible says? The exact opposite. Look inside yourself and run from what you see. Because there is none righteous, no, not one. All have fallen short. The problem's not out there. The problem's in your heart. And if you want to find the answers to life's problems and to your problems, do not look inside your own heart, but look outside of yourself. Look to an alien righteousness, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is, if the righteousness we need is outside of us, how do we get it? It's not in me, and I'm not just going to navel gaze and find it somehow, some way. It's in Jesus because of his act of obedience. How do I get it? 
How can a person receive the righteousness of God? Paul gives us a three-part answer. Number one, he says it is only by God's grace, or you could say is only by God's unmerited favor, unearned kindness, undeserved goodness. It's only a gift of God's grace. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, if your Bible is open, says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Gifts aren't earned. Paychecks are earned. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. That's your due. That's what you've earned. It's a paycheck. You have it coming. A gift is different. A gift is something that the giver gets to give at his or her own discretion. If you want a human example of that, think about the birthday cards that we send you. Every week in staff meeting, we pray over the prayer requests. We pray for the people who are having a birthday. We write you lovely little cards. We put a smiley face or a a note or whatever it may be. And you get this card from us, but you don't get a gift. My kids, on the other hand get a card from me and the staff, and I give them gifts. You say, well, if your kids get a gift, why shouldn't I get a gift? Because they're my kids, and the gift is mine to give. That's the whole point of a gift. You're not obligated to give it. If you're obligated, it's not a gift. It's somebody's due. It's what they have coming. That's what God's grace is. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You don't merit it. God isn't obligated to give it to everyone or anyone. It's His to give. And the only way that you can receive the righteousness that you need is if God graciously gives you this gift. The moment you start to say that God owes it to you, you're not talking about grace anymore. It's not a gift. And it's not how you receive the righteousness of God. Paul says right here, it is only given by His grace as a gift. Secondly, how do we receive this righteousness? It's only through faith, not through works. Only through faith, not through works. This is nothing new that just pops up in the New Testament, this idea of faith. You can go all the way back in the book of Genesis to chapter 15, verse 6. The Lord has graciously revealed Himself to a man named Abraham. And the Bible says in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. He had faith in the Lord, and in exchange for that faith, he received righteousness. How was he made right with God? It's not because he did something, it's because he believed something. He believed someone. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Habakkuk 2.4. We read this in Romans 1.17. Romans 1.17 quotes Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous will live by faith. How can I be a righteous person? The only way is by being a person who has faith. There is no work that you can do. There is no thing you can do to earn this righteousness. You understand that's the complete opposite of what every world religion tells you. Every world religion, every last one of them, looks at the world and says, you know what, there's a problem here. And then they say, this is what you need to do. 
There's something for you to do. What Paul's talking about, the good news of Jesus Christ says, you know what, there's a problem in the world, and you're part of it, and what you need to do is believe in what Jesus has done. You have faith in what Christ has done for you. Only by faith, not works. Look at verse 22. It's the righteousness of God through faith. Look at verse 25. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by His blood. We'll come back to that word. And He is to be received by faith. Look at verse 26. God is showing His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The only way you can receive the righteousness of God is a gift of His grace. It's through faith, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the last point on your notes. It's only by grace. It is only through faith. It is only in Jesus Christ. It is only in Jesus Christ. I imagine that if you and I were to take a poll of the average Odessan or expand it and look at Texas or expand it and look at the United States, and the poll had one question, yes or no, are you a person of faith? There would be a lot of people who would say no. But the overwhelming majority would say, yes, I am a person of faith. And the important follow-up question to that poll question would need to be, what is the object of your faith? In what or in whom do you believe? I think for a lot of people, they would answer that follow-up question and just say, God, generally, Vaguely, generically, just God. I believe in God. I believe there is a God. Many of our neighbors would have an idea of God that's not a biblical idea of God. It's a, an idea of God that man has invented. For example, our Jehovah's Witness neighbors, our Latter-day Saint neighbors, our Muslim neighbors, they would all say, yes, we believe in God, but when you start to talk with them about the God in whom they believe, you realize, well, that's not the God of the Bible. That's a different idea of God. Many people in the United States would say, I'm a person of faith, and what they mean by that is I have faith in myself. That's what Disney has told me all my life. Faith in myself. My abilities, my resourcefulness, my intelligence, my goodness. I believe in myself. I have a positive self-image. I believe in me. I think many people would say... My faith is in a bank account, if they were honest, insurance policy, piece of paper that a university gave me that says I'm worth something, paycheck, a title, a position. In what or in whom have you put your faith? My prayer for you this morning is that you've put it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just God generally, but you put it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's why. Jesus has done two things for you that are necessary for you to know the Father. Number one, He's redeemed you. That's Romans 3.24. There is redemption in Christ Jesus. 
That word redemption is taken from the slave markets of ancient Rome. It describes a person who walks into one of those slave markets and pays the price, the redemption price, the ransom price for someone to be set free. That's what Jesus did for you in His death on the cross. The price was His life. And He gladly, joyfully paid it that you might be redeemed, ransomed, set free. Then there's verse 25. It says that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by His blood. That word propitiation isn't taken from the slave market. It's taken from the temple. It describes a priest who offers a sacrifice, and that sacrifice satisfies the wrath of God. Romans 1, 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. That's our due. That's what God owes us. Left to ourselves, that's what we have coming the wrath of Almighty God. And what the Lord Jesus Christ did is He offered Himself as a sacrifice that would satisfy that wrath, that righteous anger towards sin. And the outcome is what we just read in verse 26. Here's the result. That God might be just in punishing sin and that He might be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. To be justified means that God declares you righteous. And He declares you righteous because your faith is in Jesus and His righteousness is credited to your account. So God is just, sin has been punished, and He is also gracious and He justifies you because of what Christ has done on your behalf. All of this is what we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper together, all of it. Not just the stuff about redemption and propitiation and justifying and saving, but even the stuff about confessing sin. When we take the Lord's Supper together, what we're saying to God is, God, we're sinful people. All of us have sinned. None of us are righteous. No, not one. And our hope is not in a righteousness of our own doing, but our hope is in an alien righteousness. It's in what Jesus has done for us. And we believe that His body was broken, His blood was shed to redeem us. We believe that His body was broken and His blood was shed to satisfy your wrath that should have been on us. And we believe that the only way we can be made right with you is by your grace, through faith in Jesus. So this morning, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus, meaning you have put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you've been obedient to the Lord's command to be baptized, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. If you have not done that, our plea to you is that you spend the last part of this service thinking, praying, talking to the Lord about the righteousness that you will never be able to obtain on your own, but that can be yours by trusting in Jesus Christ. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a moment of quiet, a moment of silence, a moment where we're not talking, we're not actively singing, but just quiet, where you can talk to the Lord and thank Him for all that He's done to save us through His Son, Jesus.